The book of Ecclesiastes, I love this little book, 12 chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes. I love it probably because my major professor in seminary, his name was Dr. Rick Byrajan. He was a Hebrew professor. In fact, I would have probably concentrated. I wanted to do a PhD in Hebrew at New Orleans Seminary. But by the time I got to the end of the master's degree, it's 92 hours. I was tired of school, ready to go be a pastor. He influenced a whole lot about uh, my life. He influenced my love for fountain pens. He's the first man I ever knew to have a fountain pen. I, saw, I didn't know what a fountain pen was. And he had one. I unscrewed it, and I've never seen a tip like that. And uh, I actually... When I came home for Christmas break, my grandmother, who worked at McClinic Junior High School, was the secretary there, uh, she had a fountain pen, and that became my very first was green and silver Parker 51 fountain pen. I carried that because of Rick Byerjohn. Rick Byerjohn loved the book of Ecclesiastes. I preached his funeral uh, about eight years ago. He loved the book of Ecclesiastes. I like this book because... It confronts problems head on. The book of Ecclesiastes doesn't give you a church answer. When I say church answer, you understand what I mean. The, the book of Ecclesiastes looks squarely at the issues, sometimes in a real sobering way. The book of Ecclesiastes, when you read it, there are no pat answers. And as you grow in Christ, you hate pat answers. Get to where you can't hardly stand some of the cliches that people give you. The book of Ecclesiastes asks all of the questions that the other 65 books of the Bible answer. So it's, it's like the rest of the Bible is actually answering all the questions that the book of Ecclesiastes brings up. Namely, questions like why. Why are... Why are things the way they are? Or why did this happen to me? If, if life is dull or it's unfair or if it's depressing or if you're getting older and you're still not happy, Ecclesiastes leads us to the point, I want to know why. Why is it not working out correctly? Kent Hughes says that uh, Ecclesiastes is the only book of the Bible that was written on a Monday morning. <laughs> Derek Tidner says that in Ecclesiastes, what it is is, it, it, think about a mountain. Wisdom is the base camp, and the author of Ecclesiastes is the explorer, and he just keeps pushing, pushing into boundaries. If you're a teacher, Ecclesiastes is the student in the classroom that uh, when you answer one of his questions, his retort is, yes, but why? Ecclesiastes is a bucket of cold water on the American dream. And the truth is, we could probably use a little reality. Ecclesiastes is the, is the book of the Bible that allows the question. Sometimes you feel constrained, but... When you read Ecclesiastes, it allows the question, why am I so unhappy? Why is there injustice? And is this life actually worth living? Ecclesiastes allows those questions, invites those questions. So when you read it, 
you'll find out that Ecclesiastes offers an actually, uh, it's a unique perspective on human life. I spent um, a couple of, I don't know if it's a couple of years back, I preached through Ecclesiastes. Uh, were y'all here for that or preached through? Anybody here for when I preached through Ecclesiastes? Okay, what I hope to do tonight is take 12 uh, sermons, put them down into one. So if you were not here, you get everything they got for 12 weeks in one 45-minute session. I love preaching Ecclesiastes because every week you, you start out low, and the more you dig, the higher you get. Ecclesiastes offers up a unique perspective on human life. It unmasks uh, the myth of human achievement. It unmasks the myth of, of autonomy. It unmasks the myth of self-sufficiency. Ecclesiastes shows us our inability to actually find real meaning in this crooked world, in this world. Ecclesiastes is needed right now because it exposes the quest to find satisfaction. There is a certain quest in the world right now to find satisfaction. And Ecclesiastes just unmasks all of that and says, you won't find it there. You won't find it in work. You won't find it in pleasure. You won't find it in stuff. You won't find it in power. You won't find it in wealth. You won't find it in fame. You won't find it in sex. This book is a sandblaster. You know what a sandblaster does? It hits the, the, the car and the paint just peels off. And it, this book strips us bare. When you read it, it just strips you bare, and there's nothing there's nothing to stand on what you're hit with Ecclesiastes except the grace of God. This book is a tool to actually show us our need for Jesus Christ. So, what I want to do in this uh, intro, we'll just use Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to spend a lot of time on chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, because that's the intro. Let's talk about that. It gives you really what Ecclesiastes is about. And then near the end of our time together, I want to go through the entire book and pull out a passage from each chapter and make several points. So we'll see if that, we'll see if that works. This book, the broad theme for Ecclesiastes is, the theme is, don't build your life on lies, build your life on on Christ. Do you want to know what Ecclesiastes is about? What is its use? Don't build your life on lies. Build your life on Christ. So, we got this, uh, this introduction, give some meaning to some words before we get started, and then uh, near the end, we'll turn it into a little bit of a study. Let's talk about the title. What is the title of the book? The title, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes comes from the first verse, the words of the preacher. You see that little phrase, the first verse? The words of the preacher, the Hebrew word preacher is Koheleth. So you hear, you hear that if you're in a Hebrew class, it's called Koheleth. Um, in Latin, it is the one who calls an assembly, the ecclesia. So the Greek translation will be ecclesia. It's when we talk about church or ecclesiastical things is the assembly. We assemble together. This is nothing more than the preacher calling for an assembly. Come and listen. So the preacher is introduced in verse 1. That's where the name Ecclesiastes comes from. Who is the author of Ecclesiastes? Well, there is some debate among scholars, even among conservative scholars. There is some debate on this. Historically, Jews and Christians alike 
for most of our history, Jews and Christians alike, have attributed this book to Solomon, mostly because his name is in it. You see it right there uh, in the very beginning, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So the son of David, Solomon. Others think that it's an anonymous, that it's not Solomon, that this, um, the professor I was telling you about, uh, Dr. Byron he, uh, he also is the guy that influenced me to, to wear a suit. Like a lot of people wonder, why do you wear a suit all, all the time? A couple of things. One, it's really easy. It's a uniform. If you don't have a sense of fashion, uh, you put a suit on, okay, a white or blue shirt, and kind of pick out a tie, I'm off to the races. Uh, another reason I, I always wear a suit is when I started pastoring a church, I was 23 years old. And was the youngest pastor in Lincoln County, and I was trying to, I sounded like a football player. I just got done playing college football, still talk like, like a meathead. I just barely learned to read. I was trying to actually get respect. So if I walked in a hospital room, walked in a funeral room, I walked in a, a funeral home, so Dr. Marjan taught me that. He's like, you know what, you, you sound dumb, so dress up. <laughs> this is back when, when you could talk to students like that. Was, I was like, yes, sir, that sounds good, right. I showed up one time to hear him read a paper at an evangelical th theological society. I had a brand-new suit, double-breasted suit, and I had a button-down shirt on. And he said, I mean, I thought he would be appreciative that I came to, the, you know, to hear him read. I had to drop two and a half hours to do it. And uh, his first words to me were, hey, don't ever wear a button down with a double-breasted suit. I was like, yes, sir. That was his, that was his greeting. <laughs> yep. I had the last word, though. I got to preach his funeral, right? Yeah. I wear what I want. Okay, the author. So it could have been Solomon. Uh, I think it was Solomon. Dr. Bajan thought it was someone that put on the Solomonic mask is what he said. That didn't make any sense to me. Um, the easiest and the plainest reading, like when you read it, it, the easiest, and that's one of the rules of interpretation, is what is the easiest reading? What is the plainest sense of the text? And the plainest sense of the text, when you read it, is it's Solomon. Several themes that run through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the major theme is right there in verse 2, and it's also restated at the end of the, end of the book in chapter 12. Uh, chapter 12, verse 8, and the, the theme is this, vanity of vanities, see the repetition? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That is the actual theme of the entire book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything is vanity. Okay, so if that's the theme, then you've got to ask the question, what does he mean by the word vanity? We're going to get the theme, then we've got to have the word. So what's it mean? That word vanity uh, comes from a Hebrew word, if you like this sort of thing. Uh, the Hebrew word is havil, H-A-V-I-L. If you like that, if you like to know, H-A-V-I-L, havil is the word. And that word is shown, it's, it's 38 times in this book. And uh, it, has multiple, it has multiple meanings. It's like in, in the English language, we have words that, that really have usages and not necessarily meanings. The same is true in Hebrew. It has multiple usages. Uh, sometimes it means a vapor. Sometimes a mist. Sometimes a smoke. Uh, sometimes something that is unsolvable. Um, it's a, 
It's a, it's a puff of wind. You go to the eye doctor and sit you down in the chair and make you look. Is this better? Or is this better? Is this better? And I don't ever, it's very confusing. But one of the things they do is, uh, I think it's a glaucoma test, is they put your face right up to uh, a little hose that is going to blow a puff of wind in your eye. You know what I'm talking about? That's vanity. It's there, and it's gone. It's, it's real, but you can't, you can't grasp it. When it finally does get cold enough, you walk outside and you see your breath, you see it, it's real, but you can't grasp it. It's not there, but for a moment, it's the word vanity. You breathe on a cold day, vanity. It's nothing, the idea is that there's, the preacher's saying, it's not something you can get your hands on. It's not that you're saying it's not real, it's it's strange whisper on the wind. It's an, an enigma, enigma. So, where is the gospel in this book, the gospel? Because if you read it, you don't see it at the very beginning. How does a Christian, okay, let's just assume, here we are, believers in Jesus Christ, been redeemed by Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. How do we approach the book of Ecclesiastes? Because there's no book in the Bible that is quite like Ecclesiastes. There's no writer quite like the preacher. And really, it can feel, uh, it can feel when you read it, at first blush, it can feel uh, pessimistic. You're skeptic. Anybody here a pessimist? Anybody raise your hand if you're a pessimist? Anybody here an optimist? All of you are optimists? My dad's a pessimist. Uh, a pessimist, he would say he's a realist. But if you're having a... If you're having a parade, he can bring a rain cloud into your parade. Find a way to do it. And it's a little bit what Ecclesiastes. It's what he's like. If you think it's going well, the preacher shows up and says, no, it's vanity of vanities. Everything you're building your life on, vanity. But I think that's, um, it's a, that's not a fair reading of this book. You have to look. You'll find him, though. God is here, you see. God is here in this book. He's introduced as creator. He is introduced as the one who is sovereign. He's inscrutable. He's wise. God in the book of Ecclesiastes is to be feared. He is to be, he is to be worshipped. Here's what Ecclesiastes does. The book of Ecclesiastes exposes the gap between God who is holy and man who is a sinner. And it, as Christians, we read it, and that book tells us this gap can only be filled by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, that gets us to the first two verses. And what I'd like to do in the time as we go through the first two verses is to squeeze these two verses for some truths that you can take away. So I'm going to give you eight here and then maybe 13 on the back end. I've got a whole lot to say. Do you all have notes? Do you all see it already? So I'm not, it's already been telegraphed. You have it. I always forget you have notes. Like I think I'm giving you like a surprise. I got something you're already looking at. You know, what I do with the, the outline on Sundays, uh, that outline, I don't send it till after I've written the manuscript for a Sunday morning. And I'll send it from my phone to all of those that want to get it, and then they'll put it out on social media, and it's there available for anybody that wants to download it digitally. And I always forget that I've done that. And I keep thinking I can maybe not say something or I can skip a point. 
And a lot of times I'll see it come up on the screen and remind it, oh, no, I got to go ahead and say that. There it is. You already have everything. So let's go, let's go through it. Let's go through the verses. Here's the first one that we learned, first lesson. Number one is perspective is helpful. Perspective is helpful. Okay, if this is Solomon, King Solomon is, a, is attested to have written three books. Right? Solomon was the author of three books, the Song of Songs, the book of Proverbs, and the book of Ecclesiastes. So the Song of Songs he wrote when he was young and amorous and his eyes were taken away by a good-looking woman. Uh, the book of Proverbs when he was middle-aged, he's writing something for his son. The book of Ecclesiastes when he's an old man and he gets to the end and says, you know, all of that was worthless. That's sort of, if you'd like to put it in categories, that's the way to do it. Ecclesiastes. When you read it, as an old man, he had done everything. He had been with whoever he wanted to. He had everything. And as an old man, he's still empty inside. And he gets to the bottom of all that he's done and had and all the riches and all the women, all the wine, and he gets there and says, satisfaction is in God alone. You see, Ecclesiastes gives perspective. Perspective. That is to say, you don't have to learn every lesson the hard way. Some have said that those hard lessons stick with you. Maybe they do. But there are some lessons you can learn. You can learn by reading at the Bible. You have the church. You have Christian friends. You, you learn wisdom. And that's what the preacher is saying. Look, I'm... I've learned some things. Let me explain them to you. One of the uh, things that Solomon says at the end of chapter 5, uh, at the end of chapter 5, he says, God is in heaven. You are on earth. Let your words be few. That's perspective of somebody that's been there and now pointing to the futility of life without Christ. So this book provides perspective. Here's the second lesson I, I think you can find in, in this book. <clears throat> Number two, words have, words have power, and God's word has the most power. Verse one, the text says, these are the words of the preacher. That's, a, that's an official introduction. You can find the same sort of thing with Amos, with, with Jeremiah. When, when Jesus speaks of the word, he says, and the word speaks about me. Well, the Ecclesiastes, this word has, has power. And Ecclesiastes, when you read it, not pessimistically, but when you read it, Ecclesiastes has the power to melt away all of the stuff that doesn't matter so that you can cling to the things that do matter. I mean, really, that's what we're hoping our children learn in Awana right now through the Bible is to basically what we're trying to teach we want you to learn to cling to that which does matter as opposed to that which doesn't matter. Don't you want students to learn that? Be 15 years old and, and have the wisdom of God that comes from the Bible to, okay, what, what do I need to put my life in and what do I not? That's what the Bible does. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes does. <clears throat> that, that you can <clears throat> see that you can cling to only God and his gospel that you can cling to Jesus, that Jesus is life, that his life, death, and resurrection, that you can live in the forgiveness of sins, that there is, uh, there is joy in the Lord. To find 
to find your joy in the Lord. Okay, I'm going to give you a third one. <clears throat> Number three, life is, per, life is perplexing. Life is perplexing. You're going to read Ecclesiastes, you find out life is confusing on so many levels. And that's what verse 2, that's the theme of verse 2. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Two things about this. Uh, one is it's said twice. When you read verse 2, it's exactly vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. It's said twice by the, um, that's my way of emphasis. It, when, you, when you say something is by way of emphasis, you are saying to the highest degree. Uh, think of, uh, you know the phraseology, the, the holy of holies. You know that's the most holy place. The song of songs, that's a song that is so great, is the song of songs. The, we talk about the Lord, we say the Lord of lords, we call him the king of kings. You get the idea. Here it is, vanity of vanities, that life is double vanity, it's absurd. It makes no clear sense, it is totally beyond human comprehension. Work hard, you love your children, take them to church, provide a secure home, tell them you love them every single day. Now this. And, and that, so that, even that is there. See, the perplexing pain, that is there for a reason. Ecclesiastes says that's there, that emptiness is there for a reason. It drives us to the mercies of God. It's not wasted. It's one of the lessons you learn, that the vanity of vanities, all is vanity, is the reminder, yeah, every bit of it, every bit of it. You find your security over here. There's a fourth lesson. <clears throat> fourth lesson is life is short. Life is short, so short. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, five times. Five times is the word vapor. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Five times. Five times he says it. It's a puff of air. You're here one second and gone the next. And, and the older you are, the faster time passes. There's some of you in here, you're older than me. You're shaking your heads. Is that, would you agree with what I've just said? The older you get, the, like it doesn't, like I, I don't want to be 21 again. I don't have any desire to be 21. It's a confusing time. I don't want to be 31. It's busy. I wouldn't mind being 41 again because you're still young enough, you know. And you think, that where does it go? One of the things you learn when you read Ecclesiastes, that, okay, so look, it's very short. Life is short. And what you need to do is make sure you make every moment count for the Lord. Whatever circumstances you are put in, forget what it is you're trying to achieve. What do you have right now? I mean, what does James say in James chapter 4, verse 14? James says, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. We would know who our grandparents were if it were not for Ancestry.com. America is not an old country. It's not old in comparison to other countries. And sometimes on Sunday afternoons, if I'm not too worn out, I'll get in the car, put the top down. If I can get Connie to come with me, sometimes I do it by myself and ride way out into the country past Union County and Anton County. 
you get out there, and there are a couple of old cemeteries. And you go and wander around the cemeteries. Some of them have graves that, that will reach back into the early 1800s. Now and then, you might run up, if you go to Kannapolis, uh, you might run up on a, a grave that's from the Revolutionary War. Nobody knows who those people are. That's just a couple hundred years ago. Think about the people in my life uh, that I'm related to. Been buried out in Union County with, you can go to Presley or Preslar. The funny thing about Presley, some people have spelled it with one S, some with two. And then some people have forgot near the end, the E-Y just put an E-R on it. So there are Presslers out there that direct, directly related. Nobody knows that. And the preacher, when you read this, you find out it, it goes. Life is short. You're a mist. Are you, we're not trying to build a legacy. I don't have a legacy. We don't have a legacy. Be faithful. Live for Christ. Point people to the Lord. You're a mist for a while, and then you vanish. You read the Psalms, the psalmist in 103. The psalmist says, as for man, his days are like grass. This is similar to what I quote in Sunday morning. His days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it, and it's gone. Its place knows it no more. By way of contrast, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children. So what you read in Ecclesiastes is life is short, turn to Christ. Life is short, turn to Christ. What did Count Zinzendorf say? Count Zinzendorf said that our job is not to build a legacy. Our job is to preach the gospel and die. So what we do. Preach the gospel and die. Here's a fifth thing. That had a little musical tune to it. There, at our uh, other campus, at Harris Campus, sometimes the phone will go off. Uh, there's a lady that has, it's a train whistle that goes off. <laughs> I mean, it's frightening. Like, it's gone off several times, and she'll let it just ring. It just goes off and off. So I'm thankful that wasn't. That's a nice little tune. Wasn't a wasn't a train whistle. Okay, here's the fifth way. Number five. Nothing. Here's what we learned. Nothing is reliable. Nothing is reliable. Vanity of vanities. All. Look at the word all. All is havil. Nothing lasts. Went to the uh, Henry Ford Museum, Detroit, Michigan. Dad and I drove up there one time. I wanted to see it. Uh, like cars, and there's a lot of other stuff up there. Really, it's a great museum. Uh, it's about all that's really great about Detroit, but it's worth going up there. And uh, they have a Model T that they've had since it was first pr produced. It's never been rebuilt, never been gone through. The mo motor's never been overhauled. They just drive it. The things were built, you know, built to last. We live in a time where things are not built like. I mean, cars go to the scrapyard. Houses break down, buildings rot, clothing wear out, legacies fade. And, and so in verse 2, the preacher makes this sweeping statement that all of it, all of your existence is vanity. And, and what that does is, is it wipes everything out and says there's only one thing that remains. That is Jesus, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. 
And this book sets it up. This one book sets up the other 65 to say, come and put your full weight over here. All of your hopes, all of your pain, all of your frustrations, all of your worries, all of your sin, all of the addiction, all the junk, put it right there on the cross of Jesus because this world doesn't last. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a lesson you learn here. Let me give you a sixth lesson. <clears throat> Number six, drudgery means something. Drudgery. That vanity is built into the creation order. Vanity of vanities, says, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? Vanity is built into the creation order after the fall. After the fall. Before the fall, work was fun. It's great. Productive. You don't have to wear any clothes. It's really good. After the fall, after the fall, you're just bored. You get bored with stuff. You hate your job, get lonely. And you go back to the very beginning in, in, in Genesis where Adam and Eve uh, sinned in the garden. They were cast out of the garden. And listen to what the Lord says to Adam in Genesis chapter 3. Here's what the Lord says. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you will return. So, so after the fall, it's nothing but futility. It's pain. It's work. And you do all of that until you actually die. I mean, you've heard people say, spend your life paying taxes, then you die. Pay your taxes, then you die. It's a really futile statement, but if you're a Christian, you're saying, yeah, that's right, that's true, you're right, that's right. It's good to see the drudgery because the drudgery means something. It means that we actually have something that is not drudgery. Drudgery makes heaven more real. We try to get heaven on earth. People want to live forever and cryogenics and make your home so wonderful you never want to leave it. What drudgery does, man, when you're in the middle of it, it's breaking down, just think, this makes heaven that much more real. That's the sixth thing. Let me give you a seventh one. Number seven. You are more fragile than you think. Vanity. The next time you're out in the cold, if it ever does get cold here, next time you're out in the cold, when you take a breath, breathe out, count the seconds of how long you can actually see your breath. That's how long. That's your life right there. That's your life in relation to eternity. Or, I mean, honestly, like right now I got this thing going on. Connie and I went to the beach. Uh, and there developed some cold, I don't know, the cold stuff went away, I don't have any fever or anything. It's just, just stuck with me. I make a living out of talking. So I got all this junk in my nose and down in my throat. and You're just, you're just more fragile than you think. Infection, car wreck, doctor not paying attention, give the wrong medicine. 
Connie's aunt Cher today had surgery for malignancy. It's an unseen malignancy. And, and every bit of that, so all of that, left unchecked is depressing, but that is used by God to point us to the grace of God. So that as, as sinners, we would see that life is transient, so we love God. And, and understand grace, that, that God would love dust, that he would love a vapor, that he would love you. That's, that's the joy of God's love given to us in Christ. Let me give you an eighth one. Then I'm going to go through the book real quick. What time do we get out? 7, 25 or 30? 7.15 is Rick and 7.35 of his Kyler's ever. Where, how does Blake, what does Blake land? Do y'all remember? He's early too? Uh, he did? Yeah. How about that? And did it, and still got early. Yep, okay, well, how about that? Yep. Okay, number eight. Life does not make sense, but neither does grace. So look, life doesn't make sense, it's true. Don't get down about that. Grace doesn't make sense. The Christian gospel says it doesn't make sense that God loves you. doesn't make sense. We've talked about the word vanity a, a whole lot, havil. Uh, uh, but, you know, the, the first time that word shows up, the first time the word vanity shows up is back in Genesis chapter 4. It's the name Abel. It's the exact, when you read it in Hebrew, it's the exact same consonant, Havil, Abel. It's the same. And his name, think about Abel. He never speaks. You never, go read it. He never says a word. His brother kills him, and, and Abel's blood calls for vengeance. Now, you draw a straight line from Abel, draw a straight line from Abel's blood that calls for vengeance, to the blood of Jesus at Calvary, that, and, and Jesus' blood does not call for vengeance. Jesus' blood calls for grace and mercy to all who will believe. But the truth is, life doesn't make sense, but grace doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that God would redeem you, that he would love you, that he would come after you, that he would forgive you, that he would restore you, that he would heal you, that you could go to sleep tonight feeling loved by God, wake up in the morning with joy in your heart, even as the world falls apart around you. Don't build your life. So the point is don't build your life on lies. Build it on Christ. Okay, now let's take a sprint. Let's, let's do a sprint through the book. I want to give 13 lessons on life from the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's the first one, number one. Life without Jesus is terrible. Life without Jesus is terrible. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Generation goes and generation comes, but the earth remains the same. The sun rises, the sun goes down, it hastens to the place where it rises, the wind blows to the south, it goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear 
not filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. It's terrible. And this is written from the perspective of not having Christ. One of the lessons you learn, chapter 1, is life without Jesus is terrible. Second one, Ecclesiastes 2. Without Jesus, the frustration never ends. You can read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and it's him talking about all that he had. Um, I'll read some of it. Said in my heart, come now, test you with pleasure. Uh, but I found out this is vanity. Instead of laughter, it's mad of pleasure. What use is it? Come down to verse 4. I made great works. I built houses. Come down to verse 7. I bought male and female slaves. Come down to verse 8. I had gold and treasure of kings. I had provinces. I had singers, men and women, many concubines. The delight of the sons of men. I became great. I surpassed everyone who's in Jerusalem. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my, from my heart no pleasure. For my heart, I found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered, it's the word, I thought about it. Then I considered all that my hands had done, all the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, it was all worthless, vanity. You see, without Jesus, the frustration never ends. If you don't have Christ, what happens is it's never enough. You never get enough. And that's what Solomon said. I built and had and met and whatever I wanted, and it wasn't enough. Okay, a third lesson. Chapter 3. Third lesson is that God has a good and sovereign. Thanks, Brother Totovine. Appreciate you trying, brother. See you later. You stayed with it. You did good. It's uh, much better than a train whistle, I promise. You did good. <laughs> we'll take a baby crying anytime. We appreciate that. Good father right there. Okay, number three. God has a good and sovereign plan. So you remember the birds, their song? Every season there's a turn, turn, turn. You know, right here. This is where it comes from. Okay, so that's probably the one-hit wonder that they had. They got it from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. But what they didn't know, if you read it, what you find out is that everything that happened, God is doing that. Right? That's what chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, there's a time to be born, there's a time to die, there's a time to plant, there's a time to pick up what is planted. Come over to verse 9, after all of the time for everything. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, what he's done is, into man's heart, he's put eternity. There's a reason you believe in God. There's a reason you look up and think. There's a reason that there's no known culture that has been discovered that they don't worship something. Why? Because of this that God has put it there, and there's a plan. It's a good and sovereign plan. Sometimes I said it's Sunday, and this really helps me. It's all, it's all providence. Sometimes it's a smiling providence. Sometimes it's a frowning providence. Sometimes it's a hard providence. Sometimes it is an easy providence, but it's all providence. Providence being God doing it. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the community of God's people is incomparable. 
the community of God's people is incomparable. The New Testament version of this would be the church. There's nothing that compares with the church. It is a tragedy to what has happened to some folks that um, <clears throat> when COVID hit and they quit coming to church, when we opened everything back up, we were down for 12 weeks. We'll never do that again, but we were down for 12 weeks. Uh, we just didn't know back then. Didn't know it was just going to wipe out the earth or what. But what happened to a lot of folks is it just got comfortable and you miss. There are some really some secondary and tertiary things that happen at church that you don't get if you stay home. Handshakes, conversations, looks, see people. There's something you just, you just miss. And where I'm getting this here in Ecclesiastes in chapter 4 is verses 1 through 12. I'll go all the way to, let's go all the way to verse 9. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, some of you may have that on a wedding band. Um, it's used in weddings a lot. It has nothing to do with marriage. But, you know, Christians, we take all kind of stuff. I mean, y'all remember uh, the, the, uh, the Mizpah? Remember that? Y'all are old enough, there would be a heart that was broken. And, yeah, yeah, you put two together. There's one man wear one half of the heart and one the other had nothing to do with love or romance. It was a, there was a treaty at Mizpah to keep people from killing one another. And if they knew that, they probably wouldn't wear the... But this is, that's what Ecclesiastes here. <clears throat> Chapter 4, verse 9. <clears throat> Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift them up. Again, if two lie together and they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's community. It's, it's brothers or sisters. It's, it's standing together. If you're a Christian, you've gone through crisis, it, you know firsthand what it feels like to actually have a brother or sister come up. Just don't have to say anything. Just be there. And what you learn here, one of the life lessons is that the community of God's people, it's incomparable. I mean, I, look, we kind of not found that out firsthand. We're just three months out from losing our youngest son. And honestly, the kindness of the Lord to have us at this stage in life, at this church, during all of this, uh, the... It's been remarkable. I mean, you know, I'm giving you just sort of a, a bio, autobiographical example of this is the community of God. I know that it works. It's incomparable. Number, number five. Keep going. Number five. Ecclesiastes 5. God is good and he is worthy of our worship. He is good. It is good to know God. I get that in chapter 5. <clears throat> Let me just... Um, I want to be, I don't even know if I should say this or not. Chapter 5, uh, let me just read it. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. God is in heaven and you are on the earth Therefore, let your words be few. There, there's a movement in Christian circles of the casualification. 
the casual affection. Think with me not about clothing. Think about attitude. I'm thinking about attitude, just attitude. The attitude and approach to worship. And I love this passage here because Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1, all the way down to 7, reminds us God is good, but he's also holy. It's a, it's a holy goodness. So that our attitudes are right when it comes to corporate worship. It's good to think of God as in heaven. I'm here on earth. I need to be careful. Something by way of a lesson. Number six, here's a sixth lesson. Chapter six, the sixth lesson is that a discontented soul will never be satisfied. If you can't get satisfied in your soul, you will never be satisfied. If your soul is not satisfied, it's not going to happen. Chapter six, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing, all that he desires, and yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. Come down to chapter, uh, verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. What advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity. It is a striving after the wind. And chapter 6 is filled with this discontentedness. And if you can't get your soul satisfied in Christ, you, you stay dissatisfied with life. The converse is also true. When you are satisfied in Christ, when Christ is your all, when, you, when Christ is Lord, when he is the joy of your life, when the, the, when the joy of the Lord is your strength, then you're able to curb that. Seventh lesson. Ecclesiastes 7, number 7. You, your life is safe in the hands of God. Your life is safe. From verse 13 down to verse 18. Safe in the hand. I'll just read a little bit of it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. Here's what you consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you take hold of this, and from that without withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God will come out from both of them. To, uh, to, to fear God. When you read that in chapter 7, you find out that your life, regardless of what's going on, is safe in the hands of God. It's a great reminder. Chapter 7 is a beautiful reminder that regardless of what's happening, it's, it's where your life is. I mean, think about God has brought you here. Think about what you've been through. Think about what it took to get you here today. Think about the last 10 years, the last 5 years. And here you are. Eight thing. Number 8. Fear God and forget fairness. 
think that's the title of a sermon. Fear God and forget fairness. Let me show where I get that. Life, genuinely, you know this, but it's good to hear it. It's not fair. Quit trying to get it, the fairness. Here comes a guy at a funeral. Here's the picture. I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. They were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither shall he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. And the idea is you quit, quit thinking about who has what and, and fear God. Forget the fairness. Seek your joy in the Lord. Find contentment in the small things. Have deep gratitude in God's goodness for you and grace to you. And get, we talked about it, get perspective. Here's a ninth lesson. Number nine, this life is all that you have, so make it count. Sounds like a graduation speech. This life is all you have, so make it count. This is what he says in chapter 9, verse 7. Go and eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine. Solomon was not a Baptist. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife from whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun because that's your portion in life. And in your toil, that which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, which is the grave. And that is where you're going. That's not very uplifting, is it? You read that, it's, it's a good reminder. This is what you have. Well, when I was thinking about coming here for the, to, 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 to pastor and, and follow Joe Brown. It was a transition. It's real scary. Uh, when you're talking about a co-pastor, the general rule when it comes to, to, to coming to a church, if they say co, don't go. That's the general rule. And I remember having a conversation with uh, an older pastor, and he said to me, Clint, you got one silver bullet, it's your life, you need to shoot it. That helped me, that tipped me right over the edge. That comes, that's Ecclesiastes talking right there. That life, this life is all that you have. So if there's a conversation that you need to have, have it. There's a phone call that needs to go on, do it. If there's something you've been hesitating or putting off, this is all you have. That's from Ecclesiastes. Let me give a tenth one. Number 10, the world needs serious-minded believers. Right now, more than ever, the world needs. We are living in a devolving world and country, and it needs serious-minded believers. So what I mean is, if you read chapter 10, there is a serious-mindedness to chapter 10. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man, man's heart inclines him to the right, Guy was a Republican. A wise man's heart reclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Then when the fool walks on the road, when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone, he's a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place or calmness, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So a couple of things. 
the flies and the ointment, we don't take sin seriously enough. Inside the church, our own per we because we live in such a sinful world, we it's easy for us to say, I didn't do that. We don't take our own personal sin seriously enough. We don't take discipleship seriously enough as Christians. <clears throat> I'm just talking about Christians. We don't <clears throat> excuse me, take our own lack of biblical knowledge, knowing what the Bible teaches, knowing what doctrines are, knowing how to be close to God. <clears throat> we don't take that seriously enough. We don't take being different seriously enough. There, there was a movement probably 25 years ago, and it affected, it's infected most churches, and that movement was to be as appealing to the world, to do all we can to win people, even if it means compromising some of the things, so that we even look like the world. It affected everything from building structures to music styles to how we dress, everything. And we've, we've, we now have found out it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And we're at a point now where we need to take being different. I'm not saying put on a black hat like an Amish man. What I'm saying is the truth of the matter is we are different. I mean, if we believe this book, it has set us so far outside mainstream. Go ahead and get all right with being different. Different. That's the 10th lesson. I'm, I'm going to give you a, <clears throat> a couple more and I'm going to be done. Number 11. It's in Ecclesiastes 11. In Christ, life is good. Life is good. Verse 7. Verse 7. Light is sweet. It is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all of those things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. It's a, just a good reminder as you come to the end. It's a, I mean, in Christ, life is good. There are some hard, terrible things. But basically, in Christ, life is good. Right, chapter 12. My favorite chapter, it would be worth you going back doing a study of chapter 12 alone. If you are an aging person, and you are, if you're living, you're aging, you go and read chapter 12, and I'll give this lesson you learn there, that every stage of life is a gift from God. Every stage is a gift from God. It was a gift when you were young. It's a gift to be 30. It's a gift in your 40s. It's a gift in your 50s. You read 12 in the aging process. It's a gift in 60s and 70s to see <clears throat> how the body breaks down and how we need Christ. Just read it. From, from verse 1 to verse 8, every single stage, and I'm trying to tell myself this, <clears throat> every stage, uh, it's a gift. The Lord's giving that. That's the way he designed us. It's written in his book here. I'll end with this one, number 13. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. When the Bible speaks. This is what, uh, as, as those that come from a history, so our history reaches back to the dissenters, 
that reaches back to the Protestant Reformation, that reaches back to Martin Luther, that reaches all the way back to a, a building of faith on the Bible. <clears throat> and we actually do believe the way you hear God speak is the Bible. Uh, chapter 12, verses 9 and following. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and he uprightly he wrote the words of truth. The preacher sought to find words of delight, he wrote the words of truth. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed, are the collected sayings, they are given by one shepherd. So the words are like nails that, that put you in place. They're given by one shepherd, that is God. <clears throat> My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of the making of many books, there is no end. Much study is weariness of the flesh. At the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with everything secret, with every secret thing, good or evil. You get to the end of it and you realize that, that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. So why do we keep pressing one another to the Bible? Because that's where you find nourishment. That's where your soul grows. That's where we hear the gospel. That's where our children will flourish. That's where our church is strengthened. That's where we stand in the midst of a wicked culture because we stand on the Bible, God's Word. All right, let me close uh, with a word of prayer, praying for you and thanking God for His Word. Let's pray for our students and for our children as we close. Father Heaven, we pray in the name of Jesus by Your Spirit. You are triune God. We thank You for the Spirit that has indwelled us and the Spirit that has given us Your Word. And we pray by the Spirit for our children. <clears throat> We pray that the word that they have studied tonight and heard would go deep into their lives, that you would draw them close. We thank you for the men and women that are pouring into their lives. We pray that you keep us faithful and keep this church tied to the gospel and the Bible. We pray that in the days ahead that you would move in our worship services so that not only people coming to Christ, but believers finding deep joy in the wonderful truths of the Scripture. Father, we pray you wake us up tomorrow morning in enough time to spend time with you. Bring us back Sunday ready to be a part of the worshiping body of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.